I'm not going to sing a solo. Sorry, Edward. It's not happening. Well, this morning we come to some great stuff. And I know that a lot of you, I kind of left you all willy-nilly last week, and some of you were saying, why pray? I mean, I mean, is prayer worthless? And some people were, uh, you know, a little excited. That was good. It's always good to get excited about things. It's better than getting stagnant and stale. It's better to be hot or cold. And so we are going to get into the purpose and practice of prayer this morning. And uh, hopefully we will answer some of the questions that uh, are probably flowing in your mind. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Pastor Brody and we were, uh, I was explaining to him the most convicting story that I just ever heard. It was the most convicting thing i learned in in my well at westminster doing doctoral studies there and it was at lunch one day eating with some korean brothers and every day they'd come with all these strange korean foods that i'd never had and they slowly got me addicted to them you know seaweed and little dried up spicy fish and all kinds of stuff and so we would eat and i would ask them so tell me about the church in korea i mean what you know what's it like there and uh, you know how does it compare to our church and right out of his mouth he said you know the korean church is very serious about prayer and you know what i was thinking so we're not but I didn't say anything. I just said, so, you know, you know give me some examples. I mean, wh- why do you say that? And he says, well, in Korea, there are prayer houses. We build, the churches build, besides the buildings they meet in, they, they buy property, the most expensive pieces of property they can find on top of hills with views to build prayer houses where people can go and pray 24 hours a day. And I was starting to get a little convicted there. I was starting to think, I wonder if we could get, you know, the handful of conservative churches in Burbank to buy the Castaways restaurant. And turn it into a place where people could go and pray 24 hours a day. So then I was really foolish. I continued to ask him questions. And I'm convicted to this day. So I said, well, you know, tell me, you know, like, you know, how people use the prayer houses. And he says, well, let me tell you about my mother. And I said, okay. He says, my mother, she, uh, she on Fridays gets up and does her normal things and, you know, cleans house and at nighttime makes dinner and does the dishes. And then at nighttime she goes to the nearest prayer house and she gets on her knees and she prays all night long. And she has done this every single week since I can remember. I was convicted. I was convicted just like you're convicted right now. Ah, ah. And you know what? I was even more convicted because then I thought, you know, I need to study the scriptures on this. Maybe that's just fanaticism. And uh, of course, uh, you look in the Bible and where did they build the temple? But on the hill, the most expensive piece of property in Jerusalem. And in The far majority of places, when Jesus went someplace to prayer, where did he go? He prayed on a mountain. And the scriptures say that sometimes he even prayed all night. 
And so then I was really convicted and it's never left me. So I'm sharing it with you because friends share. But, you know, I use that illustration and I do it because I know it's convicting. And I know right now you're convicted like I'm convicted. And I do it because I want to I want to explain something that whenever you look like if you went to the Christian bookstore and you were to buy a bunch of books on prayer, this is the kind of thing you find. You find out that there are lots of books that tell stories about prayer. You know, biographies of men and women who prayed and God answered their prayers. Stories like the ones I just told you and you read the books and it just, you know, beats you and beats you and you just leave going, oh, oh, I need to pray more. And that's good. That's good. Secondly, there are uh, a few books, not very many, that talk about how to pray, you know, start the prayer journal, you know, pray like this and organize things this way. And so there are a few books of how to pray. But there are even fewer books still which actually address the theology of prayer. And this is what has happened. We have been flooded by stories of godly men and women who prayed and God answered their prayers. But we have not gone to the scriptures to find out how and why prayer works. We just assume from listening to the story that prayer works in a certain way because that's how it seems to work. We assume it works that way based off of the stories we've heard, not the word of God. And that is why there are so many people today who have ideas of prayer which are never even found in the Bible. So somebody like me comes along. And I kind of start laying out the theology of prayer. And what happens? All of a sudden in your mind, it's like, wait, wait. You know, this this isn't working with what I believe. Well, that's okay. That's okay. It's okay. As long as you see what the word of God says, it is better to align yourself with the word of God and have your prayer life flow from an understanding of the scriptures than it is for you to have false concepts about prayer and then pray according to those false concepts. And so this morning, as I challenge you to listen a little bit longer about prayer, I want you to know I'm probably going to challenge you even more than I did last week. But all I want you to do is listen to the whole sermon. Because last week, people came up to me and said, I can't believe you you think prayer doesn't make any difference. I can't believe that, you know, you said prayer doesn't change anything. And I never said that. There are some people who heard me say something they didn't like. I killed one of their sacred prayer cows and they shut me down for the rest of the service. Well, you need to listen to the whole thing because I specifically said last week and I will say this week that prayer is very significant, that it is very important, that it has incredible effects and that we need to pray. So don't I want to hear any rumors that, you know, Jack doesn't believe in prayer. Okay. So put those back away for next time. Okay, now we come to the text of Luke 5.16. 
And here we are, and, you know, I've got a little less than an hour now to say everything there is about prayer, and it's pretty difficult. So I'm going to be going very fast, and I'm sorry about this, but uh, it's just the way it is. I almost blew out the other two Q&A sermons, and then there would have been an uprising there. So we're going to try and crush everything in this morning. But let me just summarize what we learned last week. And if you weren't here, get the tape and listen to it, and then listen to this one again. Because uh, you you won't understand things. I had a man come up to me after the service, very angry, saying, well, prayer moves the hand of God. I know it moves the hand of God. And I said, well, where does it say that? I just know it, you know. And it was just, uh, God changes his mind. I said, well, I just explained that in the last service. He said, well, I didn't come. I came at the end. He heard the end of the service, and then he was all confused. And so listen, listen to what we learned last week. If you don't understand this, get the tape. We learned from Luke 5, 16. That Jesus, in the context of his ministry, though he was very busy, though his ministry was thriving, though people had real physical and spiritual needs, yet the text says that Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness to pray. He would leave the people who had real little, and people were going to hell, and he left them. People were sick. They were dying of all sorts of diseases. He would leave them, and he would often slip away into the wilderness to pray. And from Jesus' example, we learn that Jesus is the ultimate example of commitment to prayer and devotion to God through prayer. And we learn these five things. One, you need to take time to pray. Two, you need to take time to pray often. Three, you need to get away from distractions when you pray. Four, you need to make sure your ministry is undergirded with prayer. And five, you need to make sure you never neglect spending time with God in prayer because of ministry demands or pressures. So that's what we learned there. Then we talked about the importance of realizing who you're praying to. And this is so critical because most people never even think of this when they pray. And this is the most important part. Prayer isn't like doing sit-ups. You know, do some sit-ups. Okay, I did some sit-ups. Sit-ups are good for me. You know, do some prayer. Okay, I did some prayer. Prayer is good for me. That's not how it works. We are communicating with God, God Almighty, the all-sovereign God, the all-knowing God, the all-wise God, the eternal God, and every other attribute you want to think of. We aren't just praying as some sort of ambiguous exercise. It's a communication process between us and God. And you need to keep that in mind. Because if you don't, then your theology of prayer is always messed up. While many Christians say they believe, you know, God is all sovereign and all powerful and all wise and, you know, eternal and all of those things. Yet their prayer theology often contradicts what they say they believe about God. And they don't even see how it contradicts. And I'm going to show you some of those contradictions this morning as we work through some very difficult passages. But what you need to realize is this. God has an all-encompassing, all-inclusive plan which he has determined before the foundation of the world and he is bringing that plan to pass and nothing can thwart it. And we have looked at this. If you want to look at more about this, you can get the Attributes of God series, the four tapes on the sovereignty of God where we go into it in detail. Just this week, I was reading Isaiah 25, 1, which says this, O Lord, you are my God. 
I exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. And listen, why he exalts him and why he gives thanks to his name. Listen to this. For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. God has these plans that he has formed long ago and he executes them with perfect faithfulness. And don't ever think that you, by your prayers, can thwart God's plan, can change God's plan, can alter it even a hairbreadth. You can't. You can't. And we have seen this last week. And I just stated this morning because it is so important. Remember that prayer is the means by which God gives us what he wants. Not what we want. Unless, of course, what we want is in line with his will. And we saw this in texts such as 1 John 5, 14, Matthew 6, 10, Luke 22, 42, Romans 8, 26 through 27, and James 4, 15. For starters, all of those texts make it clear that prayer must be according to the will of God or it will not be answered. So there is never prayer that has ever been answered, which has not been according to the will of God. And so we just need to accept that. Okay, so if you pray something contrary to the will of God, you're not going to get your answer and you're not going to make God go, oh, wait. Okay, and change. We talked about the, the illustration we gave was a big river. The current of the river is God's will. It's flowing in one direction. When you pray, you get your prayer stick, you throw it in there and you say, according to God's will, Lord, take this stick downstream. And you know what? It goes downstream, right? No problem. But what happens if you take that stick and you throw it in and say, Lord, make that stick float upstream. I beseech you. What happens? Goes downstream. Why? Because that's where his will is going. Your your prayers aren't changing the current of his will. If it aligns with your will, you get your answer. If it's not, you don't. Now. We talked about that. Then we talked about the second critical aspect of prayer, which we learned is what prayer is. Prayer is simply put speaking to God. It's talking to God. It's communicating with God, speaking to him. And then we went and this is what really threw a lot of you into confusion. And I knew it would. But, you know, they only give me an hour to preach. So I couldn't fix it last week. Hopefully I will this week. I sacrificed 12 sacred prayer cows. That are commonly taught and believed, not because they're taught in the scripture, but because people assume that that's how it works based off the stories they've heard. Here they are. Prayer is not when God talks to you. Secondly, prayer isn't for getting what you want. Third, prayer requests are not more likely to be answered if more people pray. Four, prayers are not more likely to be answered if you pray in close proximity to an event. Five, prayers are not more likely to be answered if you hurt yourself to pray. Seven, prayer is not the means for you to speak to others. Eight, prayer is not something you are to do to be seen by men. Nine, prayer isn't the means by which you can change the eternal decree of God. Ten, prayer isn't something God needs. Eleven, prayer doesn't save you or anyone else. Twelve, prayer isn't like magical pixie dust that you just kind of spread around to make neat things happen. Okay, so we did that. And I know that some of you, just because I heard from you this week, you know, well, then why pray? Why have a prayer chain? Why even bother praying? I mean, it's see, if prayer is worthless, like you say, and listen, I never said that. I never said that. Go listen to the rest of the tape or wherever you shut down, listen to the end. 
I said the exact opposite. And I'm going to say the exact opposite thing this morning. What I said is prayer doesn't change God's eternal decree. And that's crystal clear. And if you have a problem with that, you just take it up with God. Okay, now this morning we're going to learn three more critical aspects of prayer. The first one and the last one are pretty easy. The middle one is going to hurt you. And I wish I could go slower, but I can't. So we'll try and get the first one and the last one. We'll spend a little bit of time on that. We'll spend more time on the middle one. Here we go. The first one is this. Know that God wants you to pray. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Know that God wants you to pray. Don't ever say that I said that prayer isn't important because that's not what I said. And that's not what the word of God says. Matthew 5:44, Jesus speaking says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is a command. Matthew 6, 6, but you, when you pray, go in your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, another command. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open. Three more commands. Roman or Luke 18, 1 says, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Which means at all times we are to pray and not lose heart. You heard it from me, from straight from the Bible. Romans 12, 12 says we need to be devoted to prayer. A present active participle always be in the process of being devoted to prayer. Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Again, another present, present middle participle, which means you cause yourself to pray. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Another command. First Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Another command. First Timothy 2, 8, therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. There it is. Okay, we all need to pray. Hopefully everybody's convinced of that now. Okay, so even though you may not understand how prayer works, you still got to do it. Even if you can't figure it out, even if you can't understand what I'm telling you, if you leave here going, man, I just don't understand how this works. It doesn't matter. You have to pray. What do you have to pray? You have to pray for your enemies, pray in secret, pray for all things, pray for yourself, pray for others, pray with perseverance, be devoted to prayer, pray at all times, pray for all the saints, pray in everything, pray without ceasing and pray in holiness, not sin. And then you have to do that because that's what the word of God says. Okay, we've got that point down. Let's move on. Now we're going to slow down a little bit because this is the hard part. And I wish we could spend a long time on this, but we can't. But we'll spend more time than the rest. Here it is. Know why God wants you to pray. Right. If I ask you right now, why do you pray? What is your reason for praying? Does it match up with what the scriptures say? You're thinking, I don't know. Why do I pray? You may not know why you pray. You may just pray because you're supposed to, but you may not know why. Or you may think, well, yeah, I pray so God will give me what I want. Wrong answer. I may pray so God will save people. Mm. So that it heals somebody. Mm. 
Listen, let me ask you this. What is the reason why God does everything? What is the reason he created everything? Hey, bingo. You know what? You knew the answer. Now you just need to apply that to prayer. First Corinthians 10 31 for whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. That people is the purpose of prayer. Now the question is this, how does prayer glorify God? And if you get that one down, you've got it, baby. You've got the answer. The reason why we pray. Let's say you have a friend and you pray for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or let's say you know somebody is dying for cancer and you pray that God would heal them. Or let's say you're interviewing, uh, you know, for a better job that has better hours and better pay and better benefits. Why are you praying? What is your purpose? Well, if you're going to pray in a way that God wants you to, with God glorifying motives, it must be for his what? Glory. Now, in two of those cases, you are praying for others. One, one case for yourself. But what is the motive? Why do you want to see somebody saved? Why do you see, want to see somebody healed of cancer? Why do you want that better job? Why do you pray these things? It must be. For the glory of God, because that is the purpose of all of God's creation. And it must be the driving force behind everything we do. You know, if your motivation for someone's salvation is is just so they don't go to hell, which would make you feel better, that's a selfish reason. If you're... Want to see somebody saved just so you don't have to endure knowing that they're not in heaven with you or or maybe you even have a desire to just have them be blessed so they can be in heaven and they can enjoy heaven. And you want that, you know, those aren't bad motives in and of themselves. I mean, you know, you don't want to see people suffer and you want to see people saved and you want to see people escape the wrath of God and go to heaven and enjoy those pleasures. Those are okay secondary motives, but your primary motive must be the glory of God. You see, what you want, what you should want, is you know what? I want to see that person saved so God will be glorified. So I can praise him. So that person can praise him for all eternity. So Jesus can be lifted up. So he can be exalted for what he has done. That's why I want to be praying for their salvation. You know, you want to pray somebody gets healed from some disease, from cancer or whatever. You don't want to see him suffer. You don't want to see him die. And those are noble and those are good things because we don't want to see people suffer and die or, you know, die before, you know, they live to a ripe old age or whatever. But why do you want that person healed? Is it just merely for that? Well, the Bible tells us it must be for the glory of God. You see, you need to see that person healed. So when they get healed. You can say, praise God. And then you could say, you know what, to somebody else, so-and-so, you know, was sick and, and we prayed for them and God healed them. And then that person says, what? Praise God. And then they tell someone else and that praise God and another person and pray. And pretty soon praise is being amplified to the Lord, which is the purpose of prayer. 
the primary purpose of prayer. Now, they get the benefits. They get the good stuff. We'll talk about this more in a little bit. But the driving force must be God's glory. You pray for the better job. Why? Is it just so you can make more money? So you can stuff more of the world into your life and indulge your flesh more and neglect your responsibilities to the church and God more? Well, that wouldn't be a good, very, very good motive, would it? But if your motive is, no, I want to get that better job so I can make more money, so I can have more time, so I can serve God more and give more to God and please more. You know, please God more with what I have. That's what I want to do. You see, the people that James wrote to, there were some people in his church who fell into the very kind of thing that I just talked about. They were praying, but from evil motives. Listen to what James says about them in James 4, 2 through 5. He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now we're getting into prayer. You ask, oh, so they eventually did ask in prayer, and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And see, I think a lot of this kind of creeps into our prayers, if we would admit it. You get to the place in your life where, you know, I want this and I want that and give me this and give me that. And do you ever stop and say, Lord, what do you want from me? What's best for me? You know better than I do. And that's why you tack on thy will be done, right? To make sure you don't destroy yourself with your own lust. So what have we learned? God commands us to pray. And the reason why you must pray is so God can be glorified. Now, I want to go straight to some certain kind of text because I know that they are stuck in some of your minds and some of you have been chewing on them during the week and... And these are just the hard texts that seem to contradict what the scriptures say. We've established that God is sovereign. He has declared the end from the beginning. He knows what he's going to do. He knows everything before it happens and nothing takes him by the surprise. The problem is, is there are a handful of texts in the Bible, which seems that that is not true. And so let's just look at them. The first is Exodus 32, Exodus chapter 32. And as you're finding it, it's the story where Moses goes up in the mountain. He's spending time with God. And while he's up there, the people decide to just make a golden calf and worship it in contradiction to what God had told them in the first and second commandments. And so Moses comes down and sees the people and God says this. And this is interesting. Um, God speaking to Moses says, let me alone. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Moses, leave me alone. Which tells us what? Moses was in constant what? Communion and prayer with God. He says, leave me alone. That my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and make you a great nation. Then Moses, in verses 11 through 14, entreats the Lord in prayer, appeals to God's character and his previous promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and asks God to change his mind. And guess what? Verse 14 says, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he would do to his people. What? 
What? See? It's like, Jack, I told you. Moses, move the hand of God. Well, is that what happened? Well, let's talk about another one. We'll just stack them all up here and deal with them in a lump sum. In Amos, we aren't even going to go there. Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. You can write this down for later confusion. Um, Amos 7, 1 through 6. God gives Amos a vision and says, I'm going to send locusts on the land. They are going to go through the land of Israel and they're going to devour everything and just lay the land waste. And Amos says, Lord, please have mercy on us. And he prays. And guess what? God changes his mind. In Isaiah chapter 38, verses 1 through 5, and you can look at the parallel text if you want in 1 Kings, God tells Hezekiah, Hezekiah, get your house in order, you're going to die. And so what happens? Hezekiah says, Lord, wait a second now, please, I've, I've obeyed you, I've done everything you've asked, I mean, I'm a good king, I mean, come on. And God says, okay, I'm going to change my mind. You can have 15 more years to live. You go to the book of Jonah. Jonah is sent by God to tell Nineveh, and it's a hard trip getting there. But when he finally does get there, Jonah walks through the city and says, In three days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And what do the people do? They all repent. They put sackcloth and ashes on. And Jonah 3.10 says, And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented or repented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and did not do it. What is going on in these texts? What in the world is going on in these texts? These texts seem to contradict what we've learned about the sovereignty of God and his all-encompassing plan. And I'm telling you, the scriptures do not contradict themselves. And I'm just going to, we're going to look at a passage here in a minute, which just says flat out, God does not change his mind. And then it says here, he changed his mind. Now, whenever you have that happen, you have to realize that something's going on here. You can't just pretend to ignore certain scriptures because it's comfortable for you. And most pastors just never bring this up because they're scared to. And I just don't know any better. (laughs) So let's try and work through this. How is it that the scriptures say God doesn't change his mind and that God changed his mind? How is it that God said he was going to do certain things? People prayed and then he changed his mind or repented or relented or whatever. How does that work? If prayer doesn't move God, then what happens? What is going on there? And that's what we're going to try and find out right now. First of all, let's just talk about some things we know. You know, let's talk about, let's just use uh, Moses' example. Moses comes down, sees the people worshiping the calf, and God says, I'm going to wipe them out. Now, let's just talk. Let's just say God makes that promise. Now, could God wipe him out? Was he free to do that? No. Because then he would have lied to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? In Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, in Genesis 23, in Genesis 28, right? He would have been lying to them. He couldn't do it. He is the God who cannot lie. 
Okay, you're thinking, all right, well, that is a problem. Yeah, there's more problems than that. Well, let's just start here with the table illustration. And again, if you want more on this, I would encourage you to get a copy of the tapes on the Attributes of God series on the Sovereignty of God and listen to them because I explain that a lot slower and more detail. But we talked about a table. Let's just say we put a table out here. This doesn't matter. Any sort of table, you put it out here, right out here in front of me. And, you know, you get your new digital camera and you hop up on that table and you point down at it and you take a picture. What shape is the table? Well, let's just say it's rectangle. Okay. Now you hop in front of the table. You turn around. You turn back at the table and you take a picture. Now what shapes the table? Trapezoid. Let's say you get off to one side and you're looking at it from about a 45 degree angle and you take a picture. Now what shape is it? Parallelogram. You get far away and you take a picture. Table small. You get close. It's big. Every picture you take is different. Right? That the table looks different in every single picture. But let me ask you, has the size of the table changed? No. Weight changed? No. Materials changed? No. Color changed? No. The table has remained constant. Who has changed? You have. You stand on the top, you get a rectangle. Stand in front, you get the trapezoid. Stand off to the side, you get the parallelogram. Well, listen, you're in rebellion against God. You get judgment. You repent, you get mercy. And that's what we see happening in every one of these texts. Every one of them. You have to ask yourself, why did God tell Moses he was going to wipe them out? Because he knew Moses would pray, and then he knew he was going to not wipe them out. Which he couldn't do anyways, because it would have contradicted his word. His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why did God send Jonah? You know, think about this. If God is going to wipe out Nineveh, why send Jonah? Why not just wipe him out? And why send Jonah when he was so stubborn? I mean, you know, he could have sent somebody more compliant. Do you think God knew there was somebody more compliant than Jonah? Sure he did. Do you think God could have found somebody who just would have went there and done it? Sure. Why does he pick this stubborn guy that he knows is going to go on the ship? Did he know that beforehand? Sure. That was going to try and flee. Did he know that beforehand? Yeah. Do you know the storm was going to? He made the storm. Did he know they were going to throw him over? Sure. Did he appoint the fish? Yes. Did the fish spit him up? Of course. Does that take God by surprise? This is all part of his plan. And then Jonah goes into the city because he doesn't like the Ninevites because he knows they're wretched sinners deserving of God's judgment. And he wants to God to just wipe them out. And he doesn't want to preach. Why doesn't Jonah want to preach? Because he knows what? Let me read you. Jonah 4.2. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, the repentance of the Ninevites, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. 
Write this down. Joel 2.13 says the same thing. You see, God knew the Ninevites were going to repent at the preaching of Jonah, right? And so he sends Jonah for the very purpose of saving them. And none of that was a surprise to God. And you could go to any one of the other texts and find the same thing. The point is this. God isn't up there going, whoa, Moses, he repented. Now I have to change my plan. No, it was his plan to tell Moses because it was planned for Moses to play, but pray so he could fulfill his plan to not destroy them. Listen, in all those cases, when those people prayed, did those people pray according to the will of God or not? Yes, because if they didn't, then they wouldn't have got their request. And we saw that in all of those texts already. Sure, they lined themselves up with the will. The question is, you ask them, then why did God tell them he was going to do those things? Because God knew it would motivate them to pray and that in answering the prayer, he would get glory for himself. Man, you guys are a little faster than the first service. The first service, they just kind of sat there and kind of went. This is too much for me. Uh, Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah 18. And this is a great text because this text kind of gives us the explanation of how God is constant, how he always punishes sin and blesses obedience. And so he explains how he works from man's perspective. And again, When it's from God's perspective, he is the Lord. He changes not, declaring the end from the beginning, accomplishing all his good pleasure. Nothing can thwart me. From our perspective, we pray and he answers our prayers. And it appears that we're moving the hand of God when really we're jumping into the current of his will. Look at Jeremiah 18 verse 7. And notice what it says. God says, at one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot and pull down or to destroy it. And if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it. Or at another moment I might ask concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. And if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had I'd promised to bless it. And listen, from God's perspective, he knows what he's going to do before the foundation of the world. From our perspective, God has set up certain things, blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. We don't even know what God's plan is unless it's prophecy and he reveals to it, it reveals it to us. But listen, God could say, listen, I have promised to punish all rebellion. True? Sure. And then he says, I promise to bless all obedience. True? Sure. So God comes to a wicked nation and he goes, you're going to get it. But then they repent. They jump off of the table and they move from a place where they see God's judgment to a different place. They move to where God wants them to a place of repentance and confession. And what do they get? What everybody gets when they go there. They always get compassion. And they always get mercy. God says, I'm going to bless this nation. I'm going to raise it up. I'm going to plan it. 
Israel is an example. And then that nation goes sour. What does he do? He sends plagues and famines and nations against them and plows them under and scatters them over the face of the earth. Well, I thought you were going to bless them. Hey, that's what's happening right here. He's constant in that way. And if you were to turn over to Jeremiah verse 20, chapter 26, you can see how God in Jeremiah 26 works out the theology he teaches in verse 18 or chapter 18 in Jeremiah 26 verse two. This is what we read. Thus says the Lord stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. I like that. Perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity, which I am planning to do them because of the evil of their deeds. Notice how God just says it right there. Listen. Bring everybody, tell them my word so that if they repent, I can repent of what I'm going to do to them if they don't. But does God already know what he's going to do? Sure. Does God already know what they're going to do? Sure. Yeah, God's not up there going, I wonder what's going to happen. There is a heresy today called the openness of God theology that teaches that 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 men are pretty much in control of God, that God is not in control. He's not sovereign. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And he's just kind of waiting to try and find out what we're going to do so he can just try and fit in his will the best he can. It's heresy is what it is. Well, if you look down in verse 13 and verse 19 of Jeremiah 26, you'll find the same thing. He changes his mind. Now I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 15, 29. This is, again, the section when Saul is just getting the kingdom torn away from him because of his rebellion. And, you know, Saul is not a good example. But one good thing about Saul is, is the interactions of Samuel with Saul teach us a lot of good things. We can be thankful for that. But look at verse 29. Now, this is God from God's perspective. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. That's God speaking about himself from his perspective. From man's perspective, God, sometimes the scriptures accommodate us so we can understand him. Do you know what that word means? Accommodate means God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. He is infinite. He is sovereign. He is outside of time. He's not waiting for things to happen. He's in control. He's declared the end from the beginning. And here we are in our little, you know, microscopic brains trying to figure out the infinite God. And so he speaks to us in ways like Google Gaga so we can understand. You know, let me just give you an example. The first clear one that appears in the Bible is when Adam and Eve sin and then they sew the fig leaves together and then they hide in the bushes and then God shows up. And what does he say? Where are you? As if he didn't know. Did he know? Sure, he's God. He knows everything. Of course he does. So why did he say that? For their sake. And so what you have to do is instead of ignoring certain scriptures, you have to look at all of them together and say, how does first Samuel 15, 29, I do not change my mind 
fit with those other ones where it says, and the Lord changed his mind. Well, the only way you can do it is to say God does not change his mind according to himself. But from Moses' perspective, he did. But God knew all along that Moses was going to pray and it was his plan and his will to not destroy Israel. He couldn't destroy them because he had even made promises before that he would not. Now, if you're thinking out there, okay, I guess so. Let me just go down. Let's get some practical nuts and bolts here. Let's leave Hezekiah and Amos and Joel and all those guys. You can study that later. Let's just talk about prayer. Okay? You praying. Me praying. Let's talk about this. Now, let's just say you pray. You put any prayer you want out there. I don't care if it's to, you know, get a new pad of paper or a new Ferrari or somebody get healed of cancer or somebody gets saved or the destruction of Islam or whatever. You know, just put anything you want in there. Any kind of prayer that you might pray falls into one of three different categories, doesn't it? There are prayers of confession and repentance. That's when you go to God and you say, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. Lord, I'm a wretch. You know I've done what was wrong. And you come to God and you just pour out to him and you just admit your sin. Then there is another kind or category of prayer, which you might say praying Things for asking requests for yourself or for other people, supplications, you know, um, intercessory prayer, whatever you want to call it, where you're asking God for things for yourself or for other people. And there is a final category, which is prayers of praise and thanksgiving, where you just go to God and you pray. And I don't care what prayer you might have. They fit into those categories. All right. So let's look at each of these categories one at a time. And you ask yourself how these give glory to God. And the one that's going to give you problem with is the middle one. The first one is easy. How does you confessing and turning from your sin give glory to God? No brainer. When you're obeying, this gives glory to God. When you're in rebellion, that doesn't give glory to God. And God wants you to love him. You show him love by keeping his commandments. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another, by your love for me. The two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. That's easy. No problem. Okay, we got that one done. So when you confess and you're repenting, when you're coming to God and telling him, Lord, I'm wrong, I've sinned, you're right, I'm wrong, I want to turn from my wicked way and my unrighteous thoughts and pursue that course of my life, that gives him glory and this is good because that's the purpose of prayer. The second category, which most people have most difficulty with understanding, how does this give glory to God? You put anything you want in the blank, anything you want to think of yourself, anything you want to think of your else. Let me just give you an example here. I want a million dollars. That's what I want. And I want it next week. Okay. So after church today, I'm going to pray really hard. Lord, give me that million dollars. If I could just have that million, I could give it to the building fund. I mean, I could save a little bit for myself, but you know, so I want that million dollars. So I pray next week, Lord, if it be your will, give me the million dollars. Now, what happens? Well, God knows it's, I mean, it might happen. We'll see, but (laughs) I'm open for an affirmative answer to that. So what happens is, is I, I pray for this million dollars. And you know what? I say, if it be thy will, 
And you know what? It's not God's will. And so what happens? I don't get what I want, but I get what? What he wants for me. Oh, baby, this is good. Why? Because God knows better what I need than I do. I would destroy myself with my own greed and my own lust and my own ignorance. But God, knowing better than me, gives me what he wants. Remember the definition of prayer? Prayer is the means by which God gives us what? He wants. And see, whenever you put that little not my will but thine be done, you always get what he wants. You throw in your stick and say, Lord, I want my million dollars. Make it float upstream. And God says, no, we're going downstream. But, you know, since I put thy will, I have to say, praise you, Lord, for not giving me that money. That would have been bad for me. And you know what? It would be bad for me. It would be bad for me because God knows what's good for me. And I don't. Keep that in mind. Now turn to Romans chapter 8 verse 26. And you are going to see here, hopefully now, in the whole context of prayer, these verses in a whole new light and they will just bless your socks off of you. Romans chapter 8 verse 26. This is incredible. You may have never seen these verses in this light before, but I think you will see just how wonderful they are. Now, what happened is Paul has talked about how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus at the beginning of the chapter and had the contrast between the life lived in the flesh and the life lived in the spirit. And then he talks about how um, we need to be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And then he talks about how, you know, how we're suffering in this world and we long to see God and we, we're groaning within ourselves and we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And then he gets to verse 26. And this is where it just gets so wonderful. It just almost kills you. In the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. Isn't that good news? Don't you want help? Absolutely. I want help. For we do not know how to pray as he should. Notice what he says there. He doesn't say, you know, sometimes we get it wrong. You don't know. You don't know. So when you pray, Lord, heal that person of cancer. Lord, save that person. Lord, get that person a new job. You don't know what God's will is. You don't know how to pray as you should, but, oh, good word. The spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. In other words, you take your stick, you throw it out into the river and say, God, make it float upstream. And the spirit goes, wait a second, wait a second. We're going to turn that prayer around. We're making it float down. Notice in verse 27, the middle of verse, after he says, he who searches the hearts and minds knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You don't know how to pray as you should, but the Holy Spirit intercedes in your prayer life. According to the will of God, that is, he is able to take those prayers, which you don't know how to pray and turn them around. So everyone is a prayer downstream. That is what's incredible. But that's not all. We'll keep reading verse 28. Usually we just pluck verse 28 out of context, but look at it in its context. 
And we know that God causes all things, and you could put in there all things you might ever want to pray about, even though you don't know how to pray with the Spirit interceding, to work for the good of those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. That people is why prayer is incredible. Because not only is it a means for God to amplify glory for himself, it's a means to do you good no matter how you pray, because the spirit always intercedes according to the will of God. Whoa. You want good in your life? Pray. If you pray wrong, spirit intercedes. You pray right, way to go. That's why good things do good for you. Bad things do good for you. Everything does good for you. Why? Because when you pray, God uses prayer not only to amplify glory for himself, but to do you good in every area. All things together for your good if you know God and you are called according to his purpose. That's why you need to pray. And we see from verse 28 that God causes all things. That is, he's absolutely sovereign. God is working all things together for good, which means he takes all the good and all the bad and all the evil and all the righteous, and he works them all together for good. And third, we learn it's all for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So he takes every single thing in your life and every single thing you may pray about. The spirit twitches them around so they're going in the right direction so he can bless the socks off of you and in that process, give himself glory. And I think all of us could look back in our life and remember times when we prayed about certain things, hoping God would give it to us, and he didn't. And later on, we looked back and said, I am so glad I didn't marry so-and-so. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. We've all been there. And so, the mind blower is, prayer is great. It's amazing because it's how God gets glory for himself. And it's the very reason why we exist and not because of anything we've done or earned or deserved. He uses all of our prayers to do us good. But there's this verse and I just had to crush it into the end here. James five sixteen through 18. I just got to address it. It's kind of just... I'm just going to stick it on the end here because I know some of you are thinking, well, what about James? James 5, 16 and 18. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. Here it is. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. See? Well, I want you to know, I believe that verse. It does accomplish much. It doesn't change God's decree, but it accomplishes much. What does it accomplish? It accomplishes glory for God and good for you. That's how it accomplishes much. And then he gives an example. The example is Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. And if you've taken your theology of prayer from your experiences, you would read that and you'd say, you know what happened? God was going to do one thing. Elijah prayed and made God do another thing. And then God was doing that one thing and, and Elijah prayed and he made God do another thing. And he moved the hand of God and told God where to go and God followed Elijah's lead. 
Not even close. Go to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, and 18, verse 1, and this is what you read. God says, Elijah, it's not going to rain for three years. So you know what Elijah did? He prayed for three years it wouldn't. And it didn't. Then at the end of the three years, God says, Elijah, it's going to rain. So you know what he did? He prayed that it rained. You know what it did? It rained. He didn't move the hand of God. God told him what he was going to do, and he prayed in accordance with the will of God, which is what we learned last week. So now we're coming to a landing, and I think, Jack, it's time's out. It's like, hey, just hang on. Two more minutes. How God wants you to pray. This is going to be really quick. Because so much time is spent on how to pray and prayer stories and we get all convicted. I wanted to spend most of the time in the theology of God. But let me just give you a couple little bullet points here and this will help you. First of all, the place you pray doesn't really matter. You know, Daniel prayed in the lion's den and Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish and Peter prayed in prison. It doesn't really matter where you pray. Now, of course... It's good to pray if you don't have a lot of distractions. So if you can, do that. But, you know, even if you're in the middle of a crowd, you can still pray. What about posture and prayer? Place doesn't really matter. Posture doesn't really matter either. You can stand up. You can sit down. You can lay on your face. You can raise your hands. Whatever. I would just recommend that make sure you don't get too comfortable when you pray. Because <laughs> you may fall asleep on God. As a matter of fact, I have a confession. When I wake up in the middle of the night, a lot of times I just start praying until I do. Um, Third, what is the best time to pray? Every time when you rise up and when you lie down and when you go along the way, you pray without ceasing in everything, all times. Then finally, who should you pray with? You know, a lot of people only pray when they pray with other people. You know why? Because they don't pray for the glory of God. They pray to be seen by men. And if you look at your life and you realize, you know, the only times I really pray are when I get into a prayer group or my Bible study or when I come to church on Sunday morning, that's not good. Every single one of us here needs to do what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 6.10. But when you pray, you go to your heavenly father, you pray to him in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. If Calvary Bible Church is to be a praying church, every single one here must constantly take times away to pray to the Heavenly Father in secret. We can have prayer groups and prayer chains and all of the, you know, prayer services. Those are all great, but there are no substitute for what you're commanded to do in the scripture. Which is you on your own with no one looking, going to God, prayer and confession Prayer and supplication, prayer and thanksgiving. So as you leave here today, look at your prayer life. And remember, God commands you to pray. The Bible tells you the primary purpose of prayer is his glory. And remember, you are to pray at all times, especially times alone with God, because this is what he tells us to do. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you just for being able to look at just a big sweeping movement of prayer and how it works. And Father, I know that it's complicated and there may be people here who think, I still don't understand how it all works. And Father, I pray that we would start with what is crystal clear in your word and then, Father, move towards the things that we don't understand. And if we don't understand them, help us to understand this, that prayer is important because it gives glory to you and prayer is important because it's how you bless us.
So, Father, help us to be blessed. Help us to give you glory in our prayer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.